Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us on the Van Maren Show at LifeSiteNews.com. Those of you who have been keeping track with the articles that we've been publishing on LifeSiteNews.com will know that there's been a couple of really important stories about the connections between porn, abortion, and sex trafficking lately. Uh, there's been a petition uh, urging the Florida Attorney General to investigate forced abortion of a 15-year-old human trafficking porn hub victim. I actually wrote the story about a year ago about a, a girl who went missing, a 15-year-old girl, and she ended up being discovered on Pornhub because her traffickers were uploading videos of her abuse to Pornhub. So those who were viewing these videos on Pornhub for their own entertainment or recreation were actually watching a trafficking victim get abused. This is what they were watching. And another story, uh, well, a couple of, of recent stories uh, on the hashtag trafficking hub uh, storyline, there's been multiple videos of rape, of child molestation, of sex trafficking uploaded to Pornhub. And as a result of this, there's been a lot of attention directed at Pornhub. People are discussing the fact that these videos are uploaded. Pornhub insists they're, they're being viewed by people, that each video is getting signed off on. But if that's the case, the situation is even worse than we think, because it means that videos of obvious sexual assault are being signed off on and uploaded by employees of Pornhub. And so to talk us through all of this and explain a little bit about what's going on from the perspective of her own experiences, Darlene Pawlik, and she is, has been, as I mentioned in the intro, a victim of, of sex trafficking herself for five years. She's now been out of that industry. She's been rescued from that industry for, for over three decades. She has a husband. She raised five wonderful children and now has grandchildren of her own. Her experiences are really, really uh, blood-curdling. They're chilling. Uh, talking to her, I found it really hard, actually, to, to listen to her story, to even know what to say in response to the things that she was telling me. But when you're reading these these headlines over at LifeSiteNews.com elsewhere on these, these victims of sex trafficking who are having their abuse uploaded to Pornhub, who are being forced into abortion, keep in mind Darlene's story. She's going to give us some insight into what it's like to experience that. And I hope now, whenever you read headlines like this, you understand what what it actually is that we're talking about, the real impact on real people who are being victimized by real predators. This absolutely needs to stop. LifeSiteNews.com is proud to draw attention to these sorts of stories and to try and affect change. Uh, we're thrilled that the Florida Attorney General is, is going to investigate this story as a result of the petition submitted by LifeSiteNews.com. Uh, Darlene is thrilled as well. And so without further comment from me, here's my conversation with Darlene. So, as you know, because we've we've both read these these articles now, and we'll we'll summarize them in in greater detail for the listeners later. We see increasingly that sex trafficking is linked to Pornhub, that these two exploitation industries go hand in hand. What's your response to what's happening in Florida, for example, with the 15-year-old girl who was sex trafficked and she was found because videos of her abuse ended up on Pornhub? Yeah, I, I obviously don't know this this girl at all. Her, her name and her identity have been kept silent, but I, it just is such a common thing I'm hearing so often, and it's it's very horrifying. I, I actually had someone tweet back to me that 
um, it's good that Pornhub is up there because they caught this guy. I'm like, what are you talking about? Right. All they did was re-exploit her continuously over and over and over again and make money from it. Um, I, it's, it's absolutely dreadful. Obviously, you know, we want these guys caught, but let's not have them have that access to making all this money in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this poor dear, I, I, I'm grateful that she was found. I'm grateful that she's going to get some, um, some help and be restored. But to think that this is going on so often, is, is, it's very, very heartbreaking. Do you think we're seeing a trend with the connection between sex trafficking and the porn industry? Is that is that something that's existed prior to this and we're just hearing a lot about it now? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's just being uncovered. I don't think that in any way it was a, um, a, new, a new trend. Um, it, I was... Um, first in, in sold into sex trafficking at 14 years old. And one of the men who bought me was taking pictures. Now at that time, it was 35 years ago. So there wasn't the uh, internet, um, but he was taking photographs. And it's, so it's a very common thing. So even, even 35 years ago, this was happening. And I know other people, I've, I've, um, I've been in the anti-trafficking movement now for about seven or eight years. And a, a lot of people, even child, um, um, uh, victims were um, forced to produce this kind of stuff. It's just, it's absolutely dreadful. And this was, I'm talking about 45, 50 years ago, even then, when it was just those big old video cameras, the big, right. big ones on your shoulder. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's just coming out now. And I think Pornhub making so much money off of it is just, it's, it's just dreadful because there's so many people that are now involved in it. Anybody can upload these videos and abusers are uploading them left and right. And there's no, there's no request for consent of any kind. And, and so many people coming forward with this kind of story. It, it's just awful. Let's back up a little bit then so that our, our viewers and our listeners get to know you a little bit better. What is, is your story? And it's it's very it's a very moving and very traumatic story, but you've turned your story into something that is, has has helped to rescue so many people who went through what you went through. So maybe starting at the beginning, just tell us tell us as your story, so people understand uh, the context for your comments on on the connections between sex trafficking and Pornhub. So I actually like to start before the beginning. My mom mm-hmm. was fifteen years old the first time she was raped. And um, when she found out she was pregnant with me, she, she just said, well, we were in it together. She recognized me as a person before anyone even knew I existed. And um, she told the, the young man and, and um, tried to keep it you know, on the DL, if you will, you know, to use modern vernacular. And, and yet, obviously, she couldn't. And so her parents wanted to send her away. And um, he convinced her that he would change and everything would be better. And so she married him. And he continued to attack her. They never laid down together. And she was pregnant a second time on the verge of suicide and, and finally called her mom and told her what happened. And so she was able to get out of that situation. However, um, for reasons I'll never fully understand, she sent my sister and I back to our paternal grandmother's where he had access to us. And he abused us from toddlerhood, small children. Um, and, and that continued until we were old enough to stay away from him. And so having that as my uh, sort of basis, I had a, a, a shame kind of thing going on in, in uh, 
I dissociated really well, so I had this really double life. When my mom got remarried, we had this normal family on one, you know, on one side, and um, and then we were sent over to be abused on the other. And it was it was a really a, a sort of split um, lifestyle. And then my mom divorced him and moved into an apartment where she had her brothers and her mother and her mother's friend and all kinds of people came in and out of the apartment and there was all mm-hmm. kinds of drugs and alcohol and um and 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 my uncle my mother's brother then molested me and i i hid under her bed and i kicked her awake and she she finally woke up and told him to go to back to bed but that really turned my world upside down because then i had no safe place Right. Um, or with my stepfather, it was a safe place part of the time and this normal kind of childhood where we had cousins and friends and, and now there was none of that. And so I, my world spun completely out of control. I was staying out late doing drugs and alcohol with friends and, um, or you call them friends, you know, partying, so, so to speak. And um, one day I was out in the neighborhood and this really handsome guy came to my neighborhood jet black hair, the big, huge muscles. I mean, this guy's muscles were bigger than both my legs put together. He was um, a bodybuilder from the YMCA, and I thought he was so cool. Everything about him sparkled. He had big, white, gorgeous, straight teeth, and like I said, the jet black hair. He drove a black Lincoln Continental with a red leather interior. Nobody touched it because, you know, it was his pride and joy. And uh, I just thought he was really cool. And he talked with everyone in the neighborhood. And he was so jovial and friendly. I had no idea to think, what is this man doing on a Tuesday afternoon? He's not working. It never occurred to me. I didn't think about it. And um, it's New England. I live in New England. And the weather gets cold. And so we're you know, outside. And he's talking with everybody. So what's your, what's your favorite movie right now? And what do you like to do? And what games do you play with everyone? And again, I just had no idea that I was a target. And then the weather got cold, and pretty soon I was in his car, and it wasn't long after that that I was in his bed. And then he started to talk to me about how I didn't have any gloves to wear. I didn't have boots on my feet, because my mom was impoverished from the second divorce. You know, we lived in um, uh, a tenement, a three-story tenement in an old mill city, and it was really broken down in those days. It was the Great Recession, and, and the paint was peeling everywhere, and everything was gray and broken windows, and all of the mill buildings, you know, they're beautiful now. But in those days, they were broken down, and we used to walk through there, uh, kicking the glass around and breaking the rest of the windows. And um, it was a very, very sad, very dark time. And uh, I didn't have the things that I needed. And I said, no, no, I don't, I don't need any of that stuff. I'm fine, I'm fine. But on my 14th birthday, my mom came home from running some errands and I stood at the other end of the table and I'm all like, it's my birthday. Now, mind you, I'd been running away. I'd been throwing fits. I'd been stealing from her. I hid the kids from detention under the bed in my room. I mean, I was not a good kid. And I know that, but it was my birthday. And you know, when you're 14, you think about right now. Um, There's no, especially a traumatized kid, somebody who's been abused from childhood, there is executive functioning that starts to come about between the ages of 12 and 14, where you start to think about consequences and repercussions for behavior. But when you've been abused from childhood, those are stunted. 
So when you've got this 14-year-old kid who's acting all crazy and one minute they think that you should be in love with them and the next minute, you know, they're fighting with you, telling you, you that they hate you, that's a, that's a traumatized kid. That's somebody who's got something not quite right in the brain. And they need help growing out of that. And that's what I teach people now. But in those days, I didn't know any better, obviously. And so I stood at the other end of the table and I said, it's my birthday. And she looked at me with a disgusted look. She was so angry. And she took two crumpled up dollar bills out of her purse and threw them on the table and said, here, as she walked past me. And I was devastated. I was devastated. And so that man had given me his phone number. He was never imposing. He didn't. He didn't make it sound like, I really want you to do this. He made it sound like, this would be good for you. This is an opportunity for you. You should do this thing. And so he sold me that very day. And I stood outside waiting for him in front of a drugstore. And it was lit up behind me. But in front of me, everything was gray. It was a three-way intersection. And it was it was the middle of winter. My birthday's in the middle of winter and it was slush like three inches deep. It was coming up over into my shoes. And I looked around and I just wondered, can anybody see me? It didn't seem like anybody could even see me. People were coming around the corner, sloshing the slush. And I looked around and everything was just so gray. And then he came around the corner, sloshed around the corner and I got in the and I didn't even, I don't remember looking at him at all. I just looked at the radio. I don't remember what music was playing or anything, but he, he drove me that day to his apartment and he sold me to a, a man who's in a, a full leg cast. And this man was so thrilled that I, I was such a baby. And I was 90 pounds at 14 years old. I'm not a big person now, but I was just a little girl. And he, he, he was gleeful. And it just, it turns my stomach even to this day. But then... It was, I was taking off my socks and wobbling in the room, and, and he thought that was great that I was so unsophisticated because I was a child. And I think about this poor girl at 15 years old and the things that she's gone through. You know, he sold me lots more, hundreds more times after that. And I, and I had four different pimps, and I had a violent pimp, and I had a, a pimp that that gave me drugs to keep me docile. And boy, I'll tell you, I loved Valium because it just made everything so peaceful. Right. But nothing else was peaceful in my life. And I think of this, this girl in Florida and the things that she's been through. And, and I just can't, I can't tell you how heartbreaking that is because she's just one of millions of kids that have gone through similar things. And so for, for Guave and Sarah to, to write these articles alluding to the fact that this is a terrible crime, and then to bring in Planned Parenthood, you know, part of my story is that when I was 17 and a half, I was sold to one man as a house pet. And uh, he said, if I ever got pregnant, I'd have to have an abortion. I had been passed around for five years by that time. I didn't think I was going to get pregnant. And if I, I did, I was like, let me go. He wasn't going to let me go. When I told him I was pregnant, I threw myself at his feet and I begged him to let me go. I said, I promise I'll never ever tell anyone. And he slammed his fist on the table and he said, no way. I want no life. And I, I, I felt like somebody had punched me in the stomach and I stood up and he said, well, there's the phone. And so I made the appointment with the Planned Parenthood at that time. And I, and I hung up that phone. I was shaking from head to toe. I had no idea what I was going to do, but I, I just, I was in shock. How could this really happen? 
but it does happen. This poor girl in Florida actually was forced to have an abortion. And, and that happens all the time. This, um, a couple of the studies that were alluded to in those articles um, are, are uh, evidence of that, that there are people who are forced to have, many people in sex trafficking are forced to have abortions. Mm-hmm. Some choose to have abortions out of all kinds of different reasons, but many are forced. And I, I just think that's horrible, very horrible. In my case, I, um, I called an old social worker who had been my key tracker when I was a runaway. And, uh, and she found a home for unwed mothers for me. And so we devised a plan that I would fake an abortion. And, I, and I, when he came to the door that night after I was supposed to have the procedure, I didn't know if he had me followed. I didn't know if, if I was going with him right now to be killed, if he was going to bring me to his friend that was a doctor that was going to tie me down in force. I didn't know I, what was going to happen, but I just grabbed my coat and we went out and we drove to Boston for dinner as we had done so many times before. And I told him, I have to back up because I told him about the dream. I mean, I, I had a dream that night before the procedure was supposed to have happened. Um, in my dream, I saw abortion from the perspective of the womb in color. And I, I saw half a little face, stubby little fingers. I saw a part of a rib cage. And I left school in the sixth grade. I had no natural knowledge of what was happening. But in my dream, I saw it clear as day. And I woke up screaming, God, if you're real, I need you to show up. And because of all of the emotion, and I'm sure you can feel some of that now even, I was able to convince him that I'd had an abortion. I told him how horrible it was, and that I never wanted to do that again, and that I never wanted to, to go through that ever again. And he had told me that he'd forced other girls to have abortions. And so in the back of my mind, I... I had a, a feeling that if I could convince him that I'd had the abortion, he would let me go. And he barely said anything all the way down to the restaurant. On the way home, he said he was going to let me go. But if I came back to that city, that I was his again. And um, I didn't go back to that city. <laughs> I didn't go back to that city. Um, I drove through a few times, but I didn't go back. And uh, my, my daughter's... 34 this year in October. Um, so I'm one of the very, very lucky ones. Very fortunate. God did show up for me um, when I cried out to him. And I, I hope that there are people listening that will hear what I'm saying and cry out to him because he'll show up for you too. He'll show up. If you are in any kind of a situation like this or you know someone in a situation like this, ask God to help you. He, he will show up. He will. And I, and I hope that this young girl has called out to God, and I hope that her family has called out to God, and I hope and pray that she gets the, the justice and the restoration that she desperately needs, because this life is it's so terrible. Um, it's, it's easy to convince young girls to get into it, and boys too, because there's some partying that happens, there's a lot of drugs, um, and you can be really convinced in yourself that, that it's okay, you can get through this, you can get through anything for a small amount of time, you know, and then the drugs will come back on and you'll have some relief. And, and, and there's some level of excitement to, 
to being outside of the law and, um, and that kind of thing when you're moving from place to place. Um, if I recall, this girl isn't from the area that she was, she was found in. That's also very common. I was trafficked up and down um, the coast here in New England. To, to help people understand, because a lot of people don't understand um, not what sex trafficking is like, but how it works. What can you tell us about your life from leaving your mother's house to what you just described of finally leaving with your, your baby safe? What can you tell us about that period? So I actually was trafficked out of my home. I, I would go home after being with men in the evenings. I was um, often picked up at the end of my street and brought down to a back alley near a, a, um, an illegal gambling ring where I would serve men for hours and hours and then he would bring me back to the end of my street and drop me off and I would sneak back in the house. And so that was a, that was a very common thing to do um, for a, a lot of months. And, um, and other times I would be um, just saying, like, I, I lived with some, um, a motorcycle gang for a, a couple of months, and I lived on, literally on the streets. I slept outside, uh, often winter, summer. Um, I went days without eating. I went weeks without sleeping in a, a bed or a couch. I, I, there were months when I didn't know if anyone cared whether I was dead or alive. I stayed in abandoned buildings. Um, I suffered every deprivation that you could suffer in those four years, it was four years. And I was arrested a few times. I was put in foster care. And usually um, I would get a night's sleep or something and maybe a couple nights and then I'd go, I'd leave. One time I was actually picked up by my trafficker um, because I had been in contact with him and he just came by and took me again. Um, he, he, that one tried to kidnap me a few times. Um, it was, it, it was, um, it was a hellish experience, but something you simply exist and survive, um, particularly if you're able to get enough drugs and alcohol. I was stoned and drunk most of the time. And, and uh, I, I, I can't tell you how I survived because there were many times when I should have died. I, I used to just stick out my thumb and, and be on the road for days at a time. And... Um, and there, there are no, you, you kind of build relationships. It, there's, there's no trust. They say you're thick as thieves, but there's no trust. And right. so it, it's like floating and, 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 and floating in a, in a tumultuous sea. There's, there's, um, there's an uneasiness all of the time. Right. Uh, I, I still do suffer from post-traumatic stress sometimes. Um, I, I walk around with my purse up, my shoulder up, um, in a blocking motion. I find myself doing quite a bit, actually, still. And um, like I said, I've been out of my trafficking situation for over 35 years. And so the, the trauma and the, I mean, the, the rapes and the brutality that happen are just, just horrible. I mean, thrown out of a car numerous times. Um, a moving just, car? Yeah dumped on the side of a road. Um, I, I mean, I've been, had times when I was bruised head to toe from the, the different um, treatment that I, that I had received. Um, it's, it's, it's a terrible, terrible situation. And, you know, a lot of times people will hear sex trafficking, they think of sex, but it's, 
it's not usually sex. It's about power and control and brutality. Um, it's seldom, seldom about sex at all. How did, so when you left, maybe uh, after hearing all of that, I'm sure our, our listeners and our viewers would like to hear how you got from there to where you are now, an anti-sex trafficking advocate, somebody who tells uh, your story so courageously, as somebody who advocates for people who are once in your situation. Uh, what was that? What was that journey like? What can you tell us about that? Well, I was, um, as I said, I called an old social worker, and we we've been in conversation recently, and she still doesn't remember how she found the home for unwed mothers. But this wasn't an established building or anything like that. It was a woman who opened up her home to girls like me. She had a couple of rooms in her basement. She was a very, very devout Catholic woman. And, um, and she taught us how to talk to one another. Uh, she brought us on retreats where we went up to the mountains with, with a, um, a group of people and a priest and a few nuns who cooked for us and took us for walks. And we talked about um, how to think and how to relax. Um, we did a lot of visualization techniques and um, sitting across the room from an empty chair and forgiving our abusers and different things like that. It was a, because I was pregnant, I didn't have anything else to do, basically. Right. You know, you're waiting. Um, and uh, it was a lot of, a lot of that kind of compassionate uh, therapy. I call it therapy, even though these weren't licensed therapists. They were just kind people using some techniques that were really helpful. And um, I learned how to relax my body and how to be able to, as I said, talk to one another. Um, you know, we were, we were three or four of us sometimes in those two rooms, and we were all pregnant, so we were all vomiting. Nobody wanted to clean the bathroom because everybody was vomiting, so the bathroom was always dirty. You know? <laughs> Nobody wanted to cook because it smelled awful and everybody was vomiting, so we were always fighting. And, and um, she taught us how to sit down and be able to say what was on our minds, and that was revolutionary to me because we didn't have that when I was growing up. We weren't allowed to talk. Um, my my nickname was shut, uh, sit down. My sister's nickname was shut up. Um, it was sit down and shut up. And so we didn't have that knowledge of communication, even as children. And so there, there were all kinds of times when she would sit us down and do that. Her home is, out, is now an established um, home in Quincy, Massachusetts called Friends of the Unborn. And I have one of the very first newsletters in my in my possession and I keep wow. it yeah yeah I I've actually come so so far back that I received services from her 35 years ago and now I'm able to support the ministry in meaningful ways um, I've been down there a couple of times to speak with them of course now it's COVID so I haven't been down yeah. for a while right but um but I'm able to send a, a little gift down every month so that was the journey that I came through in order to be the activist that I am now, I serve in my state's human trafficking task force, and I do. I've, I've created a curriculum for crisis pregnancy centers. I know they don't call them that anymore. Pregnancy resource centers, in order to help them to identify and respond to human trafficking. I called it Rahab's gift um, because I was so inspired by Rahab. She was a, a harlot on the wall in Jericho, uh -huh. and saved her whole family because of her faith, her gift of faith in God. And um, so I, I, I've just been able to really use the word of God in order to come through all of that stuff and, and now advocate for others. 
One of the things that I, I wanted to ask you, because looking at the stories we were discussing and then and in the context of your own personal story, there's one um, of the most prominent uh, anti-porn uh, scholars, Dr. Marianne Layden, who works at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and she talks about the exploitation industries. And she says when, you, when we're talking about pornography, uh, when we're talking about sex trafficking, when we're, even when we're talking about stripping, uh, she says these are the sexual exploitation industries. And she says because they all teach a standard uh, of, of what the human body is worth and what it means. Because if you can buy it, she says, you can steal it. So that these, these the sexual exploitation industries are are practice for sexual assault because if something can be purchased, something can be stolen. If you're not a human being created in God's image, uh, then you're a product. If you're a product that can be purchased, you're a product that can that that can be stolen. And so, um, even so-called voluntary prostitution is the pathway to sexual abuse, sexual assault. Of course, we could say that this, the same ideology underlies the abortion industry because these children are not considered to be human beings and they, they can be aborted and it's because of how we see them that we can treat them the way that we treat them. How does that resonate, uh, her theory resonate with what you've experienced and, and, and the work that you do as an activist now? Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. If you're not a person and you're a product, exactly what you said, there's no, there, there's, I mean, you can't even expand on that. It's, it's encapsulated in it. The, the, the children that are being killed by the abortion industry, they don't see them as, as, as children or, or, or people at all. Thankfully, my mom saw me as a person before, as I said, anyone I even knew I existed. And I'm so grateful for that because that carried me through. Um, when I was pregnant, there was, I mean, I, I, was, I was ready to die. There's, I wasn't going to kill my child. I, I couldn't, I, that, I just couldn't, I was ready to die. I had attempted suicide numerous times. I didn't care about my own self. Um, but to kill another person for me was not, I, I just couldn't mm -hmm. do it. Um, cause I saw that as a person, um, you know, that, that being was a person. And as you said, created in the image of God. And when we have people engaging in prostitution, and I, and I know there may be people who are listening to this engaging in prostitution say, I'm not hurting anybody else. I'm doing what I want to do. But you're part of the system that is setting up for all of those others to be brought in um, because you've got you've to have the supply. Um, in Vermont last year, uh, there was a bill to decriminalize prostitution. Now, that's not the same as legalizing prostitution. Legalized prostitution makes the state the pimp. The state gets part of the cut. Um, you know, the whole, it's regulated, etc. To decriminalize it is like the Wild West. There's, there's no reason for police to investigate anything. Right. There's, there's no, there's, you, you, he can't approach or she can't approach a child standing on the street corner because prostitution is decriminalized. Right. And even if you said above 18, if she's obviously a prostitute and she, she's doing something that is decriminalized, then the police have no, what do they call it, probable cause. No probable cause to even talk with her or him for that matter. And so exactly what you said is that those, those, those others are being brought into that against their will. And, and the other thing is when you think about consent, because they say I'm consenting adult, what does that really mean? You're consenting so that you can feed your children. You're consenting so that you, keep, you, you have a place to live. I mean, I sold my body for a sandwich. I was hungry. It had been days since I ate. 
Is that consent? Um, I don't think you can right. call that consent. Right. One of the things I wanted to ask you, because we've seen a lot of research on the subject, and it applies both to your personal story and to the story we were just discussing about the girl who was trafficked in Florida, is to what extent do pimps and sex traffickers rely on the abortion industry to cover up for their crimes and to keep women in, in slavery? To what extent? I'm sure that's something that I mean, you couldn't quantify it. Um, it's certainly happening, and it happens very often. As I said, I, I, I am a victim of forced abortion, even though I was able to escape. Um, and, and that happens all the time. I, I have a dear friend of mine who was in the same situation, and she, she did have an abortion, and, and she, she was devastated by it, absolutely devastated. Um, and, and she was a heroin addict at the time. Like after after that happened, she became a heroin addict, and, and I mean, it just tore her up. It, it, she suffers terribly from it to this day, and she's been out not quite as long as I have. But it's it's a lifelong it's a mm-hmm. lifelong pain to be carrying that, and forced abortion is, as I said, as alluded to in the articles there that um, that were written on LifeSite News, and thanks to your viewers for um, signing the petition for the attorney general to look into it. Mm. Because when that happens and she does investigate, they're going to find that this is a common thing. How common? I don't, I don't know that you can quantify it because it's happening in secret. It's like somebody said to me, well, is it a crisis that we have this human trafficking? And I'm like, it's a crisis to that one who's being trafficked, mm-hmm. no matter how many, because they want a number. They want to know how many kids are being trafficked right, right now. At any day in time, we don't know. It's happening in secret. It's under the covers, so to speak. But it's happening, and it's a crisis to that one, no matter how many there are. But as far as forced abortion, it's a, it's a terrible thing, and it's happening to what extent, I'm not sure we can quantify that, but it is happening. And until, until the Lord comes back and everything's straightened out, I don't think we'll really know because it is kept secret. And, and you know, I was a nurse for 27 years. And if it's not documented, it didn't happen. Right. So we have to rely on the documentation of these clinics we can only rely on their documentation. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So can we really tell how pervasive it is? Right. Only when people step forward, and I hope they will. I hope people will step forward and let people know what, what's happening and that this has happened to them. And I'm so grateful for um, organizations like Silent No More and, and, and these kinds of organizations that do bring people together for healing and for hope. And, um, and, and then Abby's group, and then there were none, because these mm-hmm. are the people who are revealing this that's gone on for so long. As a final question, can you just tell our listeners and our viewers a bit about your work, what you do, and then where they can find uh, your work so that they can follow the, the work that you're, you're pursuing on behalf of victims of sex trafficking? I, I actually um, don't work directly with victims. I support those who, who do. Mm-hmm. For me, um, and I don't, know, I don't know if this will change in the future, but right now I don't do any direct services. So I work with uh, Jasmine Grace. Um, who runs a ministry called Bags of Hope, and she delivers bags to people who are being prostituted right now. 
in the strip clubs and on the street corners and wherever they can be found. And they contact her ministry, Bags of Hope, sometimes. Or she does um, mentoring for those who exited the prostitution. Sometimes they haven't even exited. Sometimes they're currently engaged in prostitution, but she's doing mentoring on how to um, rethink your life and how to stabilize relationships, etc. And then there's... Um, uh, not a number up in Maine, and she's doing very similar work. She works with a lot of kids. She does the um, the schools have groups called Not a Number, and she uses a curriculum called My My Life My Choice. Her name is Trisha Grant um, in Lewiston area, and um, I and I also I support organizations like LifeSite News and and um, um, the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. They do a lot of great work. They're amazing. A lot of great work. And and the other thing is I, I work with my um, New Hampshire Human Trafficking Collaborative Task Force. And we teach law enforcement, healthcare providers, and service members, so um, social workers, for example, how to spot and respond to human trafficking. And then the other thing I've done is I've created a course online and um, all of the video portion of that course is right on my blog at thedarlingprincess.com. And also the um, course itself can be uh, purchased at rahabsgift.com. And so those are the, the main things that I'm doing right now, even with COVID, because a lot of those things are mm-hmm. still online. Um, the, one of the other things I'm working with is Mosaics, which is reaching out to the courts to teach them about trauma, okay. the trauma of human trafficking. And um, they specifically reach out to the all of the court personnel from the lawyers to the judges to the bailiffs everyone um, to teach them about the trauma that occurs with human trafficking in general that could be labor trafficking or sex trafficking and that's another thing that's kind of um, i think is really important to recognize is that the aul not no the ual sorry um the uh, it's an international labor board it lumps in legalized or decriminalized prostitution into labor. So when you look at the statistics and it says labor trafficking is this many and sex trafficking is this many, a lot of those labor trafficking are actually sex trafficking as well because it's prostitution and it's prostitution of women and children primarily. And uh, it's just, it's, it's a very, very terrible thing that's going on in our world right now made more pervasive and more lucrative by places like Pornhub, hashtag trafficking hug hub. Mm-hmm. Well, Darlene, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with us. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you for bringing this to light. Thank you for all of the work that you do. You, you have so many great, I listen to you frequently. You have so many great um, perspectives on a lot of really important, important issues. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Darlene Powell. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Please do subscribe to the show, share it with your friends. Head over to LifeSightNews.com and click on the podcast tab if you want to check out past episodes. Or you can check us out at The Van Maren Show on YouTube and subscribe to our weekly show there. Thanks so much for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.